0: I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I hope you're having a wonderful Easter season. We have a great show for you today, as we do each week. And again, thank you for joining us again this week uh, to all our regular listeners. My co-host Ashley McGuire joins me at the bottom of the hour with some enlightening takes on the FBI's memo about investigating Catholics. What are the First Amendment uh, concerns that we should have here? Ashley has been following this story that much of the media is ignoring, but we're going to get her views on that. We're excited also to talk to Chloe Cole about the very important topic of transgenderism and its effects on young people she is a very brave young woman who went down the very ugly road of gender medicine I hate to call it medicine but the way uh, in the way it applies to children she was very young when she had her puberty blocked cross-sex hormones administered even a mastectomy she's going to tell us all about that she's only 18 as we speak it's a uh, It's a powerful story from a very powerful and a vulnerable source, and I'm really glad that, I'm really honored that that she's willing to talk to, to us about it here at Conversations with Consequences. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Chloe, you are only 18. Myself and many of our listeners can remember back when we were 18, and we were not Doing the kinds of things that you are doing. You you are very bravely going about the world and uh, telling your story and, and entering into situations which I'm sure are very difficult, putting yourself in the spotlight, answering aggressive questions and being very, very brave. Where do you find the strength for for what what you are doing?
1: I think the biggest thing motivating me is just knowing that there's more there's more young people and especially young girls and boys who are out there struggling with the same thing that I am and they don't really have Many of them don't really have a voice and they're not able to speak out for themselves. And I was in that situation once. And it's not something that I wish on anybody else. So you feel
0: that you are sort of on the leading edge of a group of, of a group of young people who have been ill served by their by society, by the medical profession? Right. And you're willing to you're willing to to do what most of us are not willing to do, which is to 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 let ourselves be be in that leadership group. Right. And in a in a situation which is very uh, contentious.
1: Yeah, I really feel strongly called to to speak on the subject after after going through what I have and speaking to to other people who have been And now many of our
0: listeners uh, may know about, may know your story more or less but maybe you want to, can you share with us um, a sketch of how you came to this point in your life, all the different things that happened.
1: Yeah, so I am a detransitioner, meaning that I was somebody who went through the process of medically and socially transitioning to the opposite sex and then I went back on my decision and this all happened while I was still a kid. I started socially transitioning at 12, meaning that I changed my Name the way that I presented and dressed myself. And then I was medicalized at 13 with uh, puberty blockers or Lupron and testosterone. And at 15, I had a double mastectomy, and just a year afterward, when I was 16, was when I had stopped from the Oh
0: my gosh, you were extremely young at 12 to be um, making these decisions. What? Let, let me ask you, Do you, this decision, where did it come from? What, were you uh, influenced by your peer group or what you were seeing on the internet?
1: Yeah, for me, it was, I had struggles relating to, to being a girl growing up, but it wasn't until I started using social media that I was introduced to the idea that, I could be a boy, but I didn't have to be a girl. And, and so- there were a lot of things that I think made me vulnerable to that, being that I started puberty at a pretty young age. And so my breasts started developing when I was only around eight or nine. And this was really uncomfortable. I would hear comments about it all the time from my peers. And I became really conscious of my body at mm-hmm. a very young age. And I started to develop body image issues. I often felt like I wasn't enough of a woman and that I would never compare to to other girls and women, and that I would be better off as a boy. I was also um, I had a previous diagnosis of of ADHD, but I, sh- I strongly believe that I'm actually on the spectrum.
0: And so you found you found the onset of puberty very disturbing, which I'm not I'm not uh, surprised. I mean, I'm a woman and I went through puberty, and I found it very disturbing. When little girls start when their bodies start to change, they become extremely self-conscious, and it sounds like that happened to you. I don't know if you agree with me, but our culture. Doesn't present to us images of of womanhood, of young womanhood, that are comfortable for our eyes, right? There are things that we think we can achieve, or that we even we want to achieve.
1: Yeah, that was another thing that really complicated this. I already had a habit of constantly comparing myself to my older sisters and female relatives and my friends, but I started using a phone when I was eleven, and I started using social media and apps like Instagram because that's what everybody else my age was doing, Mm -hmm. and I. On Instagram, I saw a lot of images of young women that were often very, very sexual in nature and a lot of discussion having to do do with that, that I don't think that anybody that age should, should be exposed to that. I mean, this is content that is already difficult for for adults to digest and for me it definitely was and it really did complicate my view of what being a woman was actually supposed to be like and even the stuff that I would hear about about womanhood from other women and girls was always very negative it was always about the negatives about the pain of menstruation and childbirth and pregnancy and menopause and nobody ever talked about the good things that that came with it Mm -hmm. I didn't want it was it was hard to imagine myself growing into a woman. Do you think that the
0: that the heavily a sexualized culture that is reflected back at girls where a woman i mean i've i've raised so far two girls and i've helped them go through womanhood and i had that experience too going to womanhood from girlhood and when you're a little girl you're protected you're like in this beautiful pink bubble Right. And everybody treats you beautifully and your parents treat you like a princess. And everywhere you go, you're you're a delight to everyone's eyes. Right. But in but in Mm. a beautiful, pure sense, in a very decent and moral sense. And then when you start to look at womanhood as something that's about to happen to you, what you see in the culture is that a woman is treated as a sexual object. And so not only and I'm 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 telling you how I feel and you and I'd like to know if this makes sense to you, if this is what you. No, it does.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely how how I feel and then on and in exchange up.
0: you say okay i'm going to become a sexual object i'm also going to have a debilitating painful undignified period once a once a month and they say that childbirth is horrible and that and i'm going to be weighed down with screaming children why would i want to be a woman is is that how you experience this
1: yeah i in a lot of these the discussion that I would hear from, from like young women, especially online and like these feminist circles, about things like being a mother. The importance of like building a family was really downplayed and it was always about like how annoying and screamy children are and how they they use phrases like ruin your body for for nothing, just mm-hmm. so horrible.
0: Like it's a total. But another loss, thing about that, that they don't bring anything about,
1: good. They only take away yeah, from you. Yeah, about what you said about childhood though, about female childhood, that was that was another thing. I often felt like I wasn't taken seriously because I was too cute, because I was just a, a girl, and no matter if it, it often felt like. Because I was cute, I hated the word "cute." I hate I hate being called cute. <laughs> you like are nobody, awfully cute, Nobody Chloe. <laughs> was listening to me or calling me seriously. Uh huh. And I thought that was what being a girl was all about—just trivial things, not really being important, always getting in the way. And I wanted to be something better than that.
0: And you know, there is truth to what you say women when we're not being sexualized we're often very much um treated in trivial in trivial ways right like we're like we only think about things like dress and 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 casual things like we're not deep thinkers i remember when i was in in medical school and working um in a a big group of other of doctors you know we you do rounds right you do rounds with a bunch of doctors and and you're the lowest in the totem pole and i would ask questions but like i might i might make a comment or ask a question but nobody would turn to look at me and i felt it was because my voice was too high, so I started pitching my voice lower. <laughs> so,
1: so that's could, actually pretty common, right? That is
0: really common. I've talked to other women, and they said, Yes, you have to pitch your voice lower, you have to ask more. <laughs> Act more like a guy so that people will um, pay attention to you. And so what a strange world we present to our girls, right? Here's the, the, here, welcome to womanhood. Here's what womanhood is like. It's uh and we reflect back to them a very negative experience. And let right. me ask you, what did you hope life would be like uh, as
1: a man, as opposed to entering uh,
0: adulthood as a woman?
1: What were your dreams? Well, I mean, a lot of my idea of what being a man was really like was kind of a caricature based off of how I saw my older male relatives, including my brothers and my dad. And I tried I tried to mimic them. I tried to emulate them and my peers at school. And on one hand, I really just didn't want to be a woman. And I didn't really see myself as a woman. I often felt like I didn't even look like a girl at times. And I I didn't really enjoy being feminine for, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But... I thought that transitioning was going to make me happy and whole as a person, that I was going to become my real self as a boy. So there was a hidden self
0: inside of you and you were going to open the doors to that hidden self and that hidden self was masculine.
1: Right. That's kind of how the trans community presents it. And on top of that, the medical community and the research that I had done on this, including from resources that my healthcare provider actually has, seemed to point at seem to point out transition as the only means of treating gender dysphoria.
0: Do you think if you had been born 15 years earlier? And, and you had that same, the same set, your makeup, your normal, natural makeup that you were born with. Do you think that you, that it would have manifested in a different way than it, than as gender dysphoria? Because there is discussion about that, right? Trou- girls girls become troubled around puberty um, Yeah, and they're absolutely. very emotional. What do you, what do you think might've happened in, in another, in another lifetime in another time?
1: Yeah, I probably would have just, if it weren't this, mm-hmm. I probably would have just been like an emo kid or something. <laughs> Still very cute, <laughs> but dressed in black, right? <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah, that's very hard. So so you okay, so you're 3rd thir- you're twelve or thirteen and they start medicalizing you. Were your parents opposed or were they scared into into going along?
1: Yeah, they actually pushed back on it heavily. They wanted me to wait until I was an adult, but they had their hand forced by the doctors. They were told like there there's not any other option and, and if you don't do this then she's going to kill herself.
0: And you know now that they were wrong in a sense, or do you do you think that they were right? Uh, do they do they say that no. because they have the, the the numbers behind them, or are they simply trying to scare parents?
1: Yeah, I mean they they cite really faulty studies, like the forty one percent rate, for example. But and, and, I wasn't suicidal until I started transitioning. Oh, and then you went as far as until becoming, I was until I was on these treatments, mm-hmm. and it made it so much worse. Well, you were taking
0: tremendous doses of hormonal. First, the hormonal blocker Lupron. That's a that's right. a that's a terrible drug, Chloe. People yeah. who have men who have that. breast cancer and women. I'm sorry, men who have prostate cancer, women with breast cancer take that drug, and they they have terrible side effects. And right you, And on top
1: of that, mm-hmm. I was constantly i was i was on other um, i was on psychiatric meds like uh, like uh, both short release and long release medication for ADHD, and uh, they're using Welbutrin as an antidepressant. At, at, at one point, even though it actually has like a huge black box warning for use in kids.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. And the, HDH- the ADHD medicines cause emotional fluctuations, which are very violent. Right. So you were on all these drugs and here you are, a little 12-year-old girl trying to navigate this this uh, hormonal n- nightmare and chemical nightmare that's much worse than puberty. Right? I mean, right. It's, it's so unnatural.
1: Yeah, and really... Puberty would have been the cure. Puberty
0: was your cure. Amazing. And what, what happened when they added testosterone? What happened to your mental makeup and your emotional makeup when the testosterone started?
1: The blockers were really stressful to be on because uh, the drop in sex hormones um, actually induced a period for me, which people say like it's supposed to be like a stasis where kids can decide whether whether they want to go on to the next puberty or not. Like a pause. But it's not like that. And, and it, um, not only does it pretty much induce a state of of menopause, it also causes periods in girls who have already had them. And you can't, you can't, you can't stop, you can't stop puberty anyways. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was very lethargic on them. I was getting hot flashes and itching all over my body. And I, it was just really depressing for me. I really just wanted to move on to the next treatment, which came about a month afterward. And I was put on testosterone, which that, that felt great. Because I finally my body was no longer in the absence of sex hormones and
0: And testosterone is a very um, it's it's a mood improver. It improves it's your powerful. mood. It
1: gives you It's
0: powerful. It's a powerful, powerful hormone. <laughs> it does it does fabulous things. <laughs> if you want to improve your mood and have energy and sleep well and yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, yeah. you're describing you you're describing I just went through menopause in the last couple of years and you're describing a very it, menopause is very difficult when you're all grown up and have a family around you and, and understand your body. So I'm I'm very sorry you had to experience that at the tender age of twelve. It's very sad. So then you take the testosterone and you have a new flowering of, of sex hormone in your body. You have all the wonderful side effects of testosterone, but still not working for you. Oh, wait, we then you, you had a mastectomy
1: which yeah oh my god i mean i was i was very happy initially while starting on it but mm-hmm. there really nobody told me like there was going to be a honeymoon with these honeymoon period with yeah. all of these treatments there
0: is a honeymoon with testosterone for sure
1: yeah and i as soon as i got into high school i actually became more and more distressed mm-hmm and that was when I was put on Wellbutrin and diagnosed with uh, with with depression. And then after a few years of stopping ADHD meds, they decided to put me on uh, short release medication to treat my declining grades that were mostly caused by my, my depression that was not being properly treated.
0: And now you're and now you're in a situation you're in high school. Um, I've right. put I've many I've been through high school. Many of my I have a lot of kids who've been through high school who are in high school, and that's a very High school is a very socially fraught place, um, especially for girls. Very lots of emotions and lots of problems. But now you're trying to do high school um, on all these drugs, and you're not yep. presenting. You're presenting as a boy, right? Socially, um, as a yeah. young man, and and that must come with a million social complications of the way people are interacting with you and reflecting back to you who you are. What was that like?
1: Yeah, I feel like I do feel like it stunted my development socially. And especially as a girl, because I was I was socializing as a boy and I was being treated as one because everybody other than a few close friends thought that I was a boy. And I was missing out on uh, things like dating and getting into relationships because a lot of my other friends my age were getting into relationships. But I was still attracted to boys as somebody who appeared to be a boy. And so my dating my dating pool was pretty severely limited.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. And so you were still attracted to boys, and you didn't think of yourself as a homosexual man. I don't suppose at this point.
1: Yeah, I did. You did. Yes.
0: Well, that's very confusing, right?
1: Yeah, it was very difficult to navigate. Oh
0: my gosh, it sounds absolutely. I just can't imagine you doing this at this age, Chloe, and and such a difficult. It was a age. nightmare. It that's such a nightmare. i mean, I can I, I'm beyond shocked that we're doing this to so many children in this country, putting them th- through these torturous situations that just go
1: on year after year. And then even as somebody who mm -hmm. has gone through it, it still shocks me. I don't know how we've gotten to this point.
0: Then then something happened to you, which as a physician, I I can't, it wakes me up at night. And I think to myself, who are the doctors that remove healthy breasts from little girls? Who are these people? And how can we not, how have we not stopped them? What you, you endured a radical mastectomy.
1: I believe it's radical, right? They take everything. They don't I, leave anything behind. No, I don't think it was a radical mastectomy. Um, they So I did undergo a double mastectomy. Mm-hmm. The incision that they, they called it, the incision type I got was the most common type, which they call um, double mastectomy with nipple grafts, meaning that they excise into um, the breast tissue, they take it out, and uh, they also graft the areolas onto a, they call it a more masculine positioning on the chest.
0: Oh, okay. On an so- area
1: of scraped skin. So it's not radical, but they remove the areolas and then regraft them. Yes. Yeah, and okay. they they take out the breast tissue, and I think they also took out some lymph nodes with that as well, mm-hmm. because they uh, they tested uh, they tested the tissue for cancer afterward, and I was perfectly healthy.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. I mean, what does that feel like now to look back and say the doctors did this to me—a a surgery of that of that import?
1: It's it's very difficult to put into words just how painful it really is for me. Like I can, I can describe my feelings around it and the pain I have and where the the most painful points are, Mm -hmm. but. But it's impossible to really express, right? The, the the trauma that has been done to you and what, and what. It does feel like a part of my sexuality has been taken from me before I was able to fully realize it and, it hurts knowing, like, I'll never have that function back, like, I'll never have those those nerve endings back. I'll never be able to rescue my kids. And on top of that, I'm having complications with the grafts.
0: No, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you know, uh, these surgeons, they tell girls when, who are undergoing these, um, these evil mastectomies. I call them evil because there's no reason ever to amputate a body part that's not ailing um they tell them that you can just get implants later if you change your mind
1: that's that's not really true I mean you can never go back to a real female breast right you can never bring the function back and on top of that implants come with their own range of complications Mm -hmm. humans aren't just legos you can't take parts on and off Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: you didn't. You didn't go on with more surgeries. Um, no, I did not. And I'm sure you you thank God every day <laughs> that
1: you didn't go on. Um, yeah, I would have. I would have been too young by their standards. Their their standards, which they actually broke their uh, their standards of care and how they treated me.
0: Yeah, because the mastectomy was very early, right? Because this was some. Right. This was three years ago, and I, I think they're doing them earlier now. But 15 seems very early to me.
2: For the yeah, mastectomy. I actually
0: know
1: somebody who had a mastectomy at, at 13.
0: Oh oh that's At the just, same hospital That's just heartbreaking. A little 13 year old girl with a mastectomy. right. So you didn't go ahead with any more surgeries and and I'm, I'm very I'm very glad you didn't um, but people do very young people so people here let me ask you I many people who def, who who are against transgender surgeries and medicalization for young people for for minors they say, well once you're 18, people can make their own decisions. That shocks not me. Not always. That shocks me because I've had 18-year-old children, several, and they're not making good decisions. They're making lots no. of bad decisions no, all day long. Not. And and that's it feels like as a parent, all you're doing is trying to protect them from bad decisions for years. What do you think about that, that once you're an adult, these things are all fine and that that person, an 18-year-old, can
1: choose properly? No. Once you hit 18 you might legally be an adult, but that doesn't mean you know all the answers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: 18 is still very young and you don't really, you still don't really have much experience or knowledge having to do with the world. I mean, a lot of people, these, a lot of people don't know that they want to have kids until they're in their late twenties, early thirties. Mm-hmm. And this is a decision that'll affect that on top of pretty much every other aspect of your life mm-hmm. and I feel like 18 is just too young to to fully appreciate that I don't know if you want to
0: share this but have do you think you've recovered your fertility you don't have to share that information with us
1: obviously I haven't gotten the fertility test but uh I I started having my my uh my periods again um about two months after I started off to stop testosterone, oh, stop taking testosterone. I mean, um, but uh, then you must be okay. They, it's, I'm it's, very it's glad It's surprising to hear that. because they've been they've been very regular. When before, I only had about three or four per year because I was so young. And you they were you were a little baby.
0: Yet. You were a baby. Right. When all this happened, you were a tiny girl. So thank thank really God, was. thank God that your fertility um, was preserved. And I'm very very sorry for all those whose fertility has been has been erased i was reading about a a young boy who was on lupron and and he said that he didn't he didn't care about his fertility he's 14 this boy he didn't care about his fertility and that if he changes mind later he could adopt um there is (laughs) there's like an abyss of ignorance in that statement which is normal for a 14 year old um and then somebody else who was who was against the, this this uh, medicalization said, well, at least this child should have had um, fertility counseling. And I'm thinking, right, fertility counseling at fourteen with a fourteen year old boy. What does that even mean? What's a fourteen year old boy know? Even if you, how can you explain to a fourteen year old boy what that
1: means to give up no your, your sons and daughters? No, I mean, no matter how much you tell a kid, they're not going to. They just can't make an informed decision on this. But I kind of had the same idea, like. When, when, when my endocrinologist told me, like, I might not be able to have kids, I was like, no, I don't I don't want to have kids because I was 13 when I was, I was starting on these treatments. Yeah, But was, at the same the time, I had this idea. Old. Imagine I had this this <laughs> Yeah, I had this idea that, like, if I wanted to have kids, then I could just go through, like, IVF or use a surrogate or something and that nothing could go wrong with any of that. Right. Because mm-hmm. I was naive. I was a kid. Right, and there's a lot of rhetoric out there uh, acting like children can
0: just—you can sort of pull them off trees like like apples, right? When you want a child, yeah. you just reach up and grab one, as though yeah. as though that's even possible or, or even sh- should be done, right? Like things children should just be got whenever one right. wants them instead of coming from our bodies. Right, Chloe, we're we're pretty much out of time. Um, I'm I'm very I'm very honored to have had this conversation with you. I feel that um, the world is a better place because you're in it and because you are so brave and so good to speak so frankly about your troubles. And I know that you're saving lots of lives and lots of futures of young people. If, just as parting words of advice um, to, to parents, to grandparents, to aunts, to uncles who might be listening to this, to young people who might be listening to this and have friends who are struggling with gender dysphoria or family members? What what would
1: you say to them? This is never appropriate for kids. It's something that should wait until until adulthood. And that doesn't necessarily mean when... That doesn't necessarily mean the moment that you turn 18. This is something... This is a decision that takes a long time to um, to make a decision on. And there's no guarantee that it's going to treat your gender dysphoria. And chances are that if you do experience gender dysphoria, it might be caused by underlying issues and traumas that you have that need to be treated first. And an issue that I've noticed with a lot of these dysphoric kids, um, they're not really active in in their communities they don't really partake in like school clubs or extracurriculars or sports or anything and they're very lonely they don't really have that sense of community around them especially with their peers and so they turn to the internet to fo- to fill that when really they should be they should be working together t- with their peers they should be they should be mingling with their peers and working together on something mm-hmm to give them a sense of purpose. That's often what these kids are lacking. And they need to, they need to be, they need to know the truth because these doctors and this community that promotes this treatment as a one size fits all thing. It's, it's dangerous. It comes with a host of complications and these doctors are often not informing their patients of the full picture of things.
0: Well, there you have it. Thank you, Chloe Cole. And uh, thank you for joining us and telling us, um, telling us the truth of of your story. And thank you for your
1: bravery. Thank you so much.
0: conversations with consequences i'm your hostess dr gracie christie and i'm joined now by my dear friend and colleague at the catholic association ashley McGuire. so much fun to have you on the show ashley welcome back
3: hey gracie it's always so great to talk with you
0: so i was away for the last week on my family vacation thank god i needed it very badly and uh, we had some beautiful family time But there's been lots of stuff brewing here in the United States while I was gone. And you have had your finger on the pulse, Ashley, of an FBI-associated scandal.
3: Well, you know, Gracie, you, you're you probably not the only person who's missed this story. And that's because um, pretty much nobody's been covering it. And I actually, with, with the exception of a handful of conservative and religious outlets, uh, the story has totally fly, flown under the radar, but it has been getting more and more attention. So the story is that the FBI, a memo leaked from the FBI, much of which has later been redacted. But you can actually find the redacted memo online. And the memo was written by an agent out of the Richmond office, basically saying that um, they need to run this operation in people's churches, recruiting people's priests, um, recruiting people at church to essentially spy on people who go to a traditional Catholic masses.
0: Traditional describe, traditional meaning the Latin mass or people or yeah. just or just very conservative parishes.
3: Well, that's what's interesting. So, in the memo it explicitly talks about traditionalist Latin mass going which they define as radical traditionalist Catholics a, a, a new terminology that I'd never heard before
0: Radical. um so rad, rad, radically uh, mantilla wearing Catholics like we wear the <laughs> women who wear their mantillas radically like what are they concerned about
3: well so, I mean to quote directly from the memo it says racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists in radical traditionalist Catholic ideology. And and the memo says that they need new avenues, this is directly quoting, quote, new avenues for source and tripwire development through outreach to traditionalist Catholic parishes and the development of sources with the placement and access to report on, end quote, um, these people. So yeah, so people who go to traditional Latin mass are apparently one step away from doing... Who knows what kinds of violent activities? I mean, it's that like where you're laughing um, because it's so utterly ridiculous. But um, uh, but
0: Ashley, uh, before we get into the 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 horrible violations of our of our of our liberties as Americans, this the way this I mean, this is done in communist countries like China and Cuba, where you people are afraid to go to church because sitting next to you will be a, an informant. Um, Absolutely. What? No, and this... but you 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 quoted racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. Let's break that down a little. First of all, violent, violent. Have I missed a, a, a rash of um, traditional Catholic uh, terrorist attacks? <laughs> Did I somehow miss that?
3: No, probably. Um, maybe people are a little confused because what there has been is a spate of hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating when I say hundreds, of attacks on Catholic churches perpetrated against Catholic churches by actual violent extremists who basically are upset about what the Catholic Church holds and believes, Um, specifically abortion, but a number of other issues as well. Um, Right, so Catholic
0: Catholic, um, churches being uh, defaced with graffiti, uh, statues being pushed over, there's been... um, several instances that I know of just offhand of, uh, fires being set, uh, arson. Yeah. I know a that church our- two miles,
3: a church two miles from my house was set on fire. It caused tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. Um, this was last year. They desecrated the tabernacle. They knocked down and broke statues and they tore down the stations of, cro- of the cross. This was in the wake of the decision in Dobbs. And that's one of hundreds of attacks. So yeah, I mean, there is definitely an issue with violent extremists in this country. Uh, the issue is that they are targeting Catholic churches, they're targeting crisis pregnancy centers, including like the one that you work at, where my understanding is there was a death threat written yeah, on the wall. A
0: year almost a year ago today, um, this this coming week. So that's so it's almost like well, it's I hate that word. It's, it's gotten so trite, Orwellian, right? It's Orwellian that the people who are being targeted for violent extremists. Acts are the ones who are being
3: investigated,
0: investigated by the FBI. Guess, guess
3: who they cite as the source of that label in the FBI memo? Who? Oh. The, Southern, the Southern Poverty Law Center. So this is the same group. I mean, they're sort of this self-crowned, crown themselves the entity in charge of like policing hate groups, quote unquote, extremist groups. Um, and basically what they do is go around and put targets on conservative organizations that uh, don't toe the line on what they believe about abortion, gender ideology, things like that. But no, I, I mean, the memo is absolutely ideological. It, it explicitly references the Catholic Church's beliefs on abortion. And it cites the Southern Poverty Law Center when it, when it comes to where they came up with the definition of radical um, Catholic traditionalist.
0: So is, is this, could this be sort of a broadening of that idea of words are violence?
3: I mean, possibly, but at least what I read in the memo didn't even, you know, wax philosophical like that. This memo seemed to actually suggest that the agent who wrote it thinks that um, certain types of Catholics are a danger. And, an
0: actual physical uh, danger, like they're going to ta- take up arms and go shoot up a <laughs> I'm trying to think of a target for them which it's hard for me to think about them that way
3: yeah and it's just what's so frightening about it is well a there's there's a couple things that are frightening about it first of all that uh, according to Congressman Jim Jordan who has run hearings investigating uh, this memo which to be fair was disavowed by um, Merrick Garland and but, you know, only after, only after it got leaked, but before that, it appears to, according to his sources that he cites in his subpoena, um, and whistleblowers, it was distributed to field officers and field offices all across the country, A, um, B was approved by much senior, much more senior intelligence officers, uh, who should have, you know, rebuked this completely line agent and thrown the thing in the trash, fired him um and B was actually proposed to be expanded to include not traditional uh, Latin mass churches and masses but what they call mainline Catholic churches um, and and se- senior official senior diocesan officials so it, it just shows the kind of slippery slope that you start you know flying down when you have the government picking and choosing what forms of Catholicism, Christianity, or insert name of religion or belief here are acceptable and which aren't that it very quickly turns into something where, you know, the the net that ensnares people becomes much wider. And, you know, let's not forget that last year or two years ago at this time, that the group that was under quote investigation by the FBI were parents who were showing up at school board meetings wondering why the heck it was 18 months into the pandemic and public schools had been get forked over millions upon millions of dollars worth of funding to supposedly reopen and they were still closed because the teachers unions um, were acting like mafia figures instead of um, teachers and holding public schools hostage. So these parents were upset and school board meetings were obviously tense situations and they were labeled domestic terrorists and investigated by the FBI. So the FBI has basically been weaponized is being weaponized against American citizens who don't toe the line, who, who don't walk in march in lockstep behind whatever it is that the administration and their thugs are doing. And right now that, you know, that happens to be the Catholic church. And it's really scary, and, you know, as you point out, this is the stuff of communist totalitarian countries, um, and you don't have to be a Catholic who prefers um, the old Latin Mass to be concerned about what its implications are for a free society.
0: It's a terrifying thought that the, those tactics that are used in places like China and Cuba of infiltrating um, civic associations like like churches and, and temples and, and and house churches, people who meet together for for prayer services. That's what the government does in those places. They 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 find out that someone's having a, a prayer service or or they know about a mass that's going on, and they will send um, an undercover person to to monitor everything that's going on. And I've talked to Cubans, especially, and yeah, no Chinese, but I've talked to Cubans. Cuban friends of mine who explained um, that it doesn't just have a chilling effect on religious expression and religious your relig- ability to practice your religion, but it has a terrible um, effect on the trust between um, human beings. In other words, that you everywhere you go, um, and and in the place where you should have the most trust and the most and the and the most ability to sort of unburden your unburden your soul and find companionship, and which is what we find in our religious observances, and find community, that's where you're most afraid of finding traitors and um, having your words recorded and used against you and somebody making, you know, career moves on your back. So I, I find this uh, memo extremely scary. and And it has a lot to do with the secularization of our society and the way that here in the United States, um, we used to have, we used to have a, a, a deep respect for a pluralistic, for our pluralistic society that everybody, you know, you, you imagine that scenario. And it's true, like in my little town, there's a corner where there is um, a, temp, a Jewish temple, a Presbyterian church, an Episcopalian church, and a Catholic church. And then there's another church, there's five churches in one corner. Um, and it's this is just a typical America a little American community, right? And all of us coexist um, happily and also the people who don't practice anything and that's that's the beauty of America. and I don't I can respect my Presbyterian neighbor and my atheist neighbor and they respect me and and my our Jewish neighbors who go to temple. The other day was um, it was uh, Passover and the Jewish rabbi came because he knew my husband he knows my husband used to be Jewish and he brought us matzah for passover a beautiful box of like uh, gift matzah was gorgeous um and this this that the fbi has done flies in the face of that beautiful american pluralistic tradition where all of us live together in peace and respect each other and can see the brotherhood and the sisterhood of other co-religionists uh other religionists um and don't we don't have to share all the same beliefs but we can respect them Don't you think that this just flies in the face of that and destroys the essence of who we are as Americans?
3: Definitely. And, you know, in an article that I'm uh, working on about this, I point out that the irony is that it's these houses of worship um, that, you know, if, if the government really is concerned about violent extremism, the place where people come together peacefully despite differences are houses of worship. Mm -hmm. Um, They, you know, whether it's, and I was struck by this even before I really keyed into what was happening or what had happened with the FBI and these hearings. Um, The other day when I was at mass and, you know, sitting behind the row of wheelchairs at the front, um, you know, with the kind of wriggling kids in the back thinking, in what other place anywhere in civil society am I simultaneously with rich people, poor people, people of all different races, people of all different political beliefs, disabled people, elderly, the youngest children, pregnant? Mo- it's just. That and and I know that other houses of worship, synagogues, are the same. And
0: yeah, it's our. That, it's, that, it's really a beautiful part of our of our of our lives. It's it's the peaceful part. It's the community part. It's the loving part, right?
3: Right. And these is, are the places and the experiences that actually quell extremism. Mm-hmm, exactly, because it's where you are united in a higher belief. In a a calling for the you know toward the common good with people that you're different from, and And that has always,
0: Ashley. There's just no I can't think of any um, events that link traditional Catholics to violence. I, I can't think of a single one. Am I missing something that you know about? No, right? No,
3: and I mean that's
0: a little bit
3: it's both besides the point and the point. I mean, it's, you know, both the idea that, as you point out, the people who are wearing mantillas and, you know, doing Gregorian chants are going to suddenly pick up AK forty sevens is so bizarrely off key that it's bizarre. The women have, um, the women have
0: too many children to be worried about <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> or to be able to go get their drug, their gun license. They're way too busy. And the men are right. supporting all those babies. And that's really
3: beautiful. But it's also, it's also besides the point, because the real point is that they're being targeted because they're the people who are most likely to adhere to the church's teachings um, that people don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's why they were being targeted in this quote unquote investigation. Now, I'm glad that the FBI is being called out, but... More people need to be aware of this, that this was something real that happened. Um, It wasn't just, you know, I think there's an attempt to spin it as, oh, just some rogue agent in some office. No, it wasn't. Not according to the subpoena. Um, This was widely known about and I think is part of a broader concerning pattern of um, an entity that's meant to. Uh, protect our rights is being weaponized against our rights.
0: Well, thank you, Ashley, for giving us all that information and for joining me today. Thanks, Crazy. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel.
2: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us on the solemnity of his body and blood, popularly known as Corpus Christi, this Sunday. In the gospel for the feast, Jesus' disciples as well as critics grumble after he tells them that he is the living bread that came down from heaven and that whoever eats this bread, his flesh for the life of the world, will live forever. They mumbled aloud, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus doubles down saying, unless you gnaw on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Just as the living Father sent me and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me." In response, the critics would ultimately say, this teaching is hard, who can endure it? And many of Jesus' disciples, who had listened to so many of his life-changing words, who had witnessed so many of his stupendous miracles, including the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish to feed more than 5,000 people, which happened immediately before the scene of the Gospel, they all left. They were right in saying that Jesus' teaching about the Eucharist was very hard. To them it sounded like cannibalism. Jews couldn't even touch blood without becoming ritually impure. And Jesus was telling them that they needed to drink his blood. Sometimes I think the reason why some Catholics, like some of our fellow Protestant brothers and sisters, don't find this teaching hard is because they think Jesus is only talking symbolically. He wasn't. He stressed his flesh is real food and his blood real drink. We need to approach this difficult reality with faith. After many of the disciples left, Jesus turned to the twelve and asked if they wanted to leave. That's when St. Peter, stepped, who had stepped forward in Caesarea Philippi to say that Jesus was the Messiah and Son of Living God, courageously stuck his neck out again and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What he was essentially saying was, Jesus, we don't have the foggiest ideas to how you're going to give us your flesh to eat and your blood to drink. But what we do know is that we believe in you. Because of that faith, we believe in what you say. So if you tell us that we need to eat your flesh and drink your blood to have life, show us how. And Jesus would during the next Passover when during the Last Supper in the Upper Room in Jerusalem he would totally change bread and wine of the Passover celebration into his body and blood and say, take and eat, take and drink. St. Thomas Aquinas described the Eucharistic faith of St. Peter and of the Church when he wrote in his famous Corpus Christi hymn, Adoro Te Devote, I believe whatever the Son of God has said, because nothing is truer than the word of truth. The difficulty of Jesus' teaching about the Eucharist is what led to the first Corpus Christi. A priest named Father Peter from Prague had lost his faith in the real presence of Jesus, but he hadn't yet lost his faith in God, and hence decided to give God the opportunity to give him that faith By doing something quite drastic. In 1263, he decided to make a pilgrimage to Rome to pray at the tomb of his patron, St. Peter, for the gift of renewed faith in the Eucharist. To make a pilgrimage to Rome was quite an undertaking. It meant an 851-mile walk. At 20 miles a day, it would have taken a month and a half each direction. Despite the hardship and sacrifice, however, Peter went, desperate to save his priesthood. But after praying for weeks at the tomb of his namesake, who had said, Lord, to whom shall we go? He sensed no graces at all, crestfallen. He began his journey home when those traveling with him out of protection against bandits asked him if he might celebrate mass for them one Sunday. Out of courtesy, he accepted. They stopped at a small church dedicated to St. Christina in Bolsena, Italy, and he celebrated mass on a side altar. Right before the Lamb of God, when he broke the host, as a priest always does to put a particle under the chalice. The host in his hands began to bleed all over him and the corporal. The people beholding the miracle in front of their eyes shrieked. The pastor of St. Christina's came to see what all the commotion was about and behold, beheld the miracle with his own eyes. They had to decide what to do with the miracle. The pastor knew that Pope Urban IV was at that time in Orvieto, the well-fortified papal city, only about 10 miles uphill from where they were. And when they brought the miracle to the Pope, who examined it and heard Father Peter's story, the Pope took it as a sign that Christ wanted a feast to his body and blood, a feast of the ordinary miracle that happens in every parish every day to be celebrated throughout the whole church. It's been celebrated every year for the last 759 years. This year, the celebration of Corpus Christi is particularly special because it's taken place within the context of the U.S. Bishops' three-year Eucharistic Revival Initiative. This year's celebration should be more special still because after a year of diocesan initiatives, The revival is inaugurating on Corpus Christi its second and most important year, the parish phase of the revival. Each of the 17,000 parishes in the United States, including your own, is being explicitly urged by the U.S. bishops to commit to take one step further to help grow parishioners' Eucharistic faith, knowledge, amazement, love, and life. Some parishes are already thriving in terms of Eucharistic piety. They have reverent, graceful, prayerful masses with powerful preaching, beautiful music, and infectious hospitality. They feature plenty of opportunities for parishioners to come to pray with adoring love before the Eucharistic Lord. They pass on the Eucharistic faith with fire to first communicates to OCIA candidates and more. They host 40-hour devotions, lead Eucharistic processions, even establish adoration chapels. The parish phase is a time for them to build on what they already have. Many parishes, however, are in need of a greater upgrade. While every parish is formally Eucharistic, insofar as it exists to celebrate above all the Eucharist, not every parish has made Jesus in the Eucharist the source, summit, root, and center of its parish life, activity, and culture. This Corpus Christi begins a year for parishes to dedicate themselves to improving, and for some improving substantially, their Eucharistic focus. The U.S. bishops have published a leaders' playbook for the year of parish revival so that it might become the most impactful phase of the multi-year response to the Holy Spirit. The playbook contains four pillars, each with a specific invitation. The first pillar is to reinvigorate worship at Mass with an invitation of focus on how the Mass is celebrated. It encourages greater beauty, reverence, and liturgical silence in the celebration of Mass confessions before Mass, as well as personal witness on the power of the Mass. The second pillar is to create moments of personal encounter with an appeal for every parish to host monthly Eucharistic nights of adoration till people meet Jesus prayerfully in the Blessed Sacrament with the help of reading, talks, music, and confession. It also encourages parish retreats, prayer teams, and Eucharistic processions. The third is to strengthen faith formation through Sunday preaching series on the intrinsic connection of the Eucharist to the Paschal Mystery, to the real presence, to holiness, and to Jesus' call to evangelize and serve. It also urges a small group study series called Jesus in the Eucharist. The last of the four pillars is to form and encourage people to go out, to invite at least one person back to Mass, and to give special care to those in need and on the peripheries of existence. It asks us to imagine what would happen to our parishes if every parishioner were to reach out effectively to a fallen away family member, co-worker, or fellow student, and if priests and faithful were prepared with best practices to make them feel welcome when they come. The playbook is an important resource to help every parish take at least one step forward during the parish phase of the revival. If parishes take it seriously, however, those steps could be enormous strides and create the momentum that the revival as a whole is seeking to catalyze. One of my favorite parts of the celebration of Corpus Christi is the chanting of the Laudes et Salvatorum sequence before the proclamation of the gospel. In the second line of this great prayer written by St Thomas for the first Corpus Christi, we sing quantum potes tantum aude, which means literally "dare to do all you can," before noting that the reality of the gift of the Eucharistic Jesus far exceeds the capacity of all human praise and action. This spirit of daring to do all we can, well, it's meant to characterize our approach to the Eucharistic Jesus in general, is supposed to mark in a special way the attitude of Catholics toward the Eucharistic revival and toward the parish phase of the revival in particular. It's meant to encourage us to pull up all the stops to grow, together with our fellow parishioners, in Eucharistic knowledge, faith, love, amazement, love and life. As we prepare to celebrate the body and blood of the Lord and to receive that body and blood together with Jesus' soul and divinity, Let us ask the Lord to help revitalize our own Catholic Eucharistic life and to be catalysts for the Eucharistic revival of our parishes, fallen away family members and friends, and the whole church. Let us ask for the grace that we who feed on Jesus, who gnaw on his flesh and drink his blood, who believe and live this difficult teaching, may have life because of him and help others to come to experience that same life. God bless you.